This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The International Olympic Committee made history this week by banning the Russians from next February's games. Olympic organizers said the athletes were guilty of widespread doping and their government helped them cheat. So what does this mean for the future of international sport? I'm joined by Roger Pelkey, Jr., director of the Sports Governance Center at the University of Colorado. Welcome. Thank you. The Winter Olympics starts February 9th in Pyeongchang, South Korea. Officially, the Russian team is banned, but there are exceptions. How will that work? Yeah, the the details are unclear. So the the headline news has been that the Russians are banned, uh, but there is a procedure to be announced for how other Russians who uh, weren't part of the doping scheme uh, can be involved. It's quite possible there might be more than 100 Russians still uh, in the Winter Olympics. Now, this isn't the first time a, a country has been banned from the Olympics, right? That's right. Uh, Afghanistan was banned over the Taliban and uh, many decades ago, South Africa over apartheid. Uh, But this is the first time that a a nation has faced uh, such a ban for sporting reasons. So it's really an unprecedented uh, series of events. How will the organization determine whether these athletes coming from Russia are really clean? They have a committee put together, and it's, it's, the details are to be determined, uh, but they have to have not been involved in the, the scheme that was uncovered uh, associated with Sochi, uh, the last Winter Olympics. Uh, they have to have been uh, drug tested independently from Russia um, and any other criteria that uh, they want to put in place. Uh, it's important to note uh, they're going to compete uh, as OARs, Olympic athletes from Russia. So once the Russians get in, they'll still have Russia on their uniforms. I see. Now, they won't be wearing like a generic uniform? Will they still? No. So people may remember back at Rio, uh, this exact same situation occurred. And what the International Olympic Committee did then is it gave each sport the responsibility of deciding what athletes to have. And if Russians were allowed, they were called neutral athletes and they wore Olympic uniforms. This year, it's different. Uh, The IOC has centralized the approval process and they will be identified as Russians. That was uh, apparently part of the negotiation with Russia uh, to move past this uh, situation. Now, with those negotiations, uh, there's been some talk that the Russians will just boycott and protest. Do you expect that to happen or, or did they go far enough, the Olympic Committee, in talking about the uniforms and things like that? Uh, Vladimir Putin has already announced there will be no boycott, which has lent a lot of folks to think that this the agreement was was pre-vetted uh, with the with the Russians. Uh, there will be a lot of Russians uh, in the Olympics. The, the more cynical are saying this is just a ten week ban uh, as part of the agreement. At the closing ceremonies, uh, the Russian flag will come back out. Um, the Russian hockey team remains the the favorite to win the gold medal. So uh, there's a lot of things people could debate and argue about whether the punishment was was strict enough, real enough, um, and fit the crime. Is this real punishment, or or is it just a big show from the Olympic Committee that's been accused of ignoring these drug scandals for decades? Yeah, it is a real punishment. I mean, it, it's it's beyond doubt that uh, the government of Russia was involved in a in a, an institutionalized campaign to cheat. Uh, to dope athletes, thousands of athletes, uh, potentially, um, over many years. And some would say, you know, since the era of the Soviet Union, they never stopped. Um, but at the same time, the International Olympic Committee, uh, the World Anti-Doping Agency, which which polices doping, uh, were aware of these concerns uh, as, as long as seven years ago when a Russian whistleblower came forward. Uh, the Russian scheme was was announced in the media, the British media in 2013. Um, And it took a lot of public pressure, uh, a lot of investigative reporting, 
uh, and just the overwhelming weight of evidence before the International Olympic Committee actually acted. So there are a lot of questions to ask, not only of Russia, but of the sports organizations that are supposed to be policing these situations. So let's assume uh, that this actually reduces drug use at the Olympics. Will there be a similar impact in other international sports? Yeah, there's, I guess there's two things I'd say there. One is the Russia situation aside, uh, the evidence, the scientific evidence that's out there is that doping in elite sports is rampant. Um, the numbers aren't um, precise to the decimal point, but the estimates are uh, something like 30 to 50% of elite athletes are breaking the rules by taking banned substances. Uh, the other is that this, this, the Olympics aren't going to end the situation. Um, the, you know, the sporting gods must have a sense of humor because uh, the, the head, uh, the man who's the head of the Sochi doping scheme, uh, Vitaly Mutko, uh, who's been banned from all future Olympics, just happens to be the Russian who's in charge of putting on the World Cup next summer in Russia. So how will that play out? Yeah, so once the Olympics are over, we're going to find ourselves in yet another drama-filled situation where uh, the World Anti-Doping Agency is, has to decide if they have the stomach to, to take on the Russians again. Um, it, you couldn't make this up, and if you, you wrote it as a script, you know, you'd reject it as being far-fetched. Um, if, if Russia is in violation of the World Anti-Doping Code, on paper— WADA would have the authority to prevent the Russian soccer team from participating in their own World Cup next year, uh, all the way up to canceling the World Cup. Now, none of that seems even remotely plausible. So we're going to go from the the Olympic Committee holding the hot potato to FIFA and international soccer um, next spring. So this, this rolls right on. And just a reminder here, the WADA is the World Anti-Doping Agency, correct? That's right. Uh, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speech, speaking with Roger Pelkey Jr. He's director of the Sports Governance Center at the University of Colorado Boulder about the Olympic ban for the Russian team. Realistically, is there a way to get doping out of sports? No, there's always going to be doping in sports. So, so doping refers to the taking of substances that are on a list. Uh, the World Anti-Doping Agency has a list of about 300 substances which athletes are, are not allowed to take. Uh, because it may uh, threaten their health or it may augment their performance. Uh, And the reality is that athletes, particularly elite athletes, are looking to uh, get every advantage they can because of the financial rewards, because of the sporting rewards. Uh, And so they're going to find themselves, uh, WADA and the the, the policing agencies, always behind the curve. Uh, So there's some real hard questions that have to be asked about Uh, What substances do we really want to keep out? Are they steroids? Is it EPO, the substance that that Lance Armstrong took in in biking? Um, And and it's it's just a hard, hard challenge. Uh, And the idea that athletes um, will always follow the rules is, of course, fanciful. Getting back to the Olympics, we're just a couple months away from South Korea, and the IOC just this week released its report and imposed this punishment. Why did it take so long? Well, there's a built-in conflict of interest that sports organizations have, like uh, like the IOC. The IOC puts on world-class championships around the world, um, and the last thing they really want is for their star athletes to be removed from those competitions. And the way things were set up uh, several decades ago is that uh, anti-doping regulation is overseen in part by sports organizations. 
So you have the IOC members uh, partly in charge of WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency. Uh, and some folks have argued that this creates a built-in conflict of interest. Uh, you don't want sports organizations regulating doping of athletes. You want that to be independent. So one reason for why it took so long was that um, <laughs> IOC probably just wanted this to go away. Uh, they thought there would be an expose maybe in the media. People would forget about it. Um, that didn't happen. And it just built like a snowball rolling down a hill. Uh, and it was an avalanche they had to deal with uh, before Rio and now uh, before uh, Pyeongchang. And money must play a huge role in all of this. Of course. Yeah, money. And as people will, will know, when uh, an athlete is caught doping, whether it's Maria Sharapova uh, or Lance Armstrong, uh, the, the sponsors are usually the last ones to act. Um, they take the temperature of the room. They see how the public's responding, whether it hurts their brand. Um, and after everyone else acts, the sponsors act. Um, we saw that with the FIFA corruption crisis also. So the sponsors are really not going to be out in front in trying to deal with the doping challenges. I want to take this a little bit closer to him. You say there will be a lot of Russian athletes competing, but of, of those that aren't, are there some Americans who may win medals that otherwise wouldn't have? Yeah, that's a great question because uh, many of the Russians, uh, and I think there's several dozen now who have lost medals from Sochi, um, are all but certainly not going to be allowed into uh, the Pyeongchang Games. So there are some elite athletes from Russia whose presence uh, will mean that the, the field is more open than it would have been otherwise. Uh, so we may indeed see more Americans winning, which, again, if you're a sponsor of an American athlete, that's that's on your side. That's a good thing. Uh, there are some sports and uh, skating, uh, ice hockey and uh, ice skating uh, are, are both not wrapped up in the Sochi scandal. So we'll probably see a lot of Russians in those sports. Do you anticipate at some point that the Olympics will be permanently damaged with the audience, that it will lose all credibility. You're seeing uh, host cities becoming harder and harder to find. You're, you're having these, these scandals. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, there's a, a lot of complicated reasons for why cities don't want to host Olympics. Um, the main one is money. Uh, it costs a lot of money and they don't get a lot of return. Um, it remains to be seen what will happen to the brand of the Olympics due to the doping scandals. Uh, we can look at Major League Baseball in the United States, which had its steroid era in the 1990s and uh, seemed to go on without really missing a beat, uh, maybe a little maybe a little dip in interest. Um, but it's really not clear uh, whether the public thinks that you know, the purity of sport uh, and, and not taking any drugs um, is tops on their list for why they watch the Olympics. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Roger Pelkey Jr. is director of the Sports Governance Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. A major Colorado employer says it's nearly cracked the gender pay gap. Male professors at Colorado State University were earning more than their female colleagues a few years ago, but a new report says the gap has narrowed substantially. I'm joined by Susan James, professor of mechanical engineering and chairwoman of the Commission on Women and Gender Equity at CSU. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Hi, great to be here. Women who were full professors in 2014 were making about 93 cents for every dollar that men earned. This new report produced by the university shows women professors earning 96.6 percent of what men do. That's a difference it calls statistically insignificant. Uh, 
statistically insignificant. Uh, how do you view that gap? Well, it's important to understand that when we say statistically insignificant, we're talking about comparisons between groups. We're not talking about comparisons between individuals, for example. So the study you're referring to is comparing these groups. And when it says it's statistically insignificant, it means that we cannot declare that there's a true difference between the populations in pay. So in that sense, I feel good about it. I mean, we've made some real progress here. We're not done, and it doesn't mean that there may not be individuals around campus who might still be in an inequitable situation. So essentially, it it is to a a point where it it is equal, in a sense, is what they're saying. Correct. Now, what about a wage earner and not as a scientist? Wouldn't you like to have that that 3.4% in your pocket? Oh, absolutely. And again, it doesn't actually mean that, you know, all the women are making exactly 3.4% less than the men. Okay. But absolutely, right? I mean, ask anyone on campus if they felt they were in you know, were paid less even by a few percent compared to a counterpart, uh, they wouldn't feel good about that. How did the university address this problem? What steps did they take? Um, Well, a number of things. We've had multiple groups working on this, um, HR, our institutional research group, um, my commission, and other groups focused on gender equity around campus. And they put together a task force that included individuals from all the units I just mentioned, as well as experts from outside the university and from other universities. So we looked at best practices around the country, um, and we brought experts like statisticians in to help us um, do the statistics and the model. So this seems like a very deliberate effort to look at pay inequities at the university. Oh, absolutely. It is 100 percent deliberate and and how are are the salaries working out for women at the university? How are they being paid more? Oh, uh, you mean where is the money coming from? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the central administration, the provost office, has basically been setting aside funds to be able to correct these inequities. Since since the the the, the studying has has been going on, is that right? Um, yeah, it, I don't know if I know exactly for how long, but for yeah. several years. Mm-hmm. What else has been done to address the root causes of this? Well, that's actually a great question. Um, so in addition to looking at things like salary inequity, and I would add that, you know, we started this report with our tenure track faculty, but we are looking at all of our employee groups on campus. Um, and then to get at the underlying cause, we're really looking at the culture of the organization and taking a hard look at, you know, how did we end up with these inequities? What sorts of things in our culture and our climate may have led to them? And then taking on, you know, the, the very large effort of trying to change the culture of the institution. Now, you noted that the money is only part of this gender equity gap. Uh, can you go a little bit further into what else you're keeping your eye on? Sure. Um, I like to think of it as um, the difference between equity and fairness. So this study that was just released is about equity, okay? But fairness issues are actually harder to address. And let me give you an example of what I mean about the difference between these that's just very simple. You know, say you have a group of people in a room sitting around the table, and the boss comes in and hands everybody a pair of shoes, okay? That was equitable. Everybody got a pair of shoes, But some people might have gotten shoes that fit them and that they liked, and other people got shoes that didn't fit them and they didn't like. Well, that's not fair, okay? So an example of of faculty at a university might be that our pay 
pay between two folks might be equitable, but maybe one of those people has a much higher teaching load or a much higher service load or a bigger lab space or something like that. Those types of things really get to the fairness issues, and we're looking at those as well. But it's a much more difficult prospect. You can't just run a statistical model to fix that. Salaries at CSU were always public information, but they weren't really easy to find. Now, the university has put a list of all salaries online. Does it reveal things that pure statistics don't? I mean, for example, you are the head of the mechanical engineering department, but you're not the highest paid. Um, yes. Uh, let me explain that a little bit. You're absolutely right. We're public employees, and so our, our salaries have always been public. But it used to be you had to like walk into the library on campus and look and look it up in books. I think it's great that CSU is being transparent about salaries and putting that information online. We're a very large organization, and one of the things we're working on is presenting that data as accurately as possible. So, for instance, you say I'm not the highest paid person in my department, even though I run the department. Well, some of the salary data you're looking at includes people who, in that public listing, are listed under mechanical engineering, but they actually hold administrative positions outside my department, you know, like they're running a large institute or they're a vice president or something like that, that is makes it look like they're paid more than me, but they're actually doing a very different job than being a professor in my department, if so, that makes sense. So like you're saying, statistics just don't get at everything that, that, that goes into this. Well, that and also just that the public salaries online, I mean, we do our best job to make them as accurate and possible, but it, you know, it comes out of a database and it doesn't catch every um, intricacy about, you know, so when you're looking at it, you can't necessarily tell if that person is just a regular professor in the department or is actually doing something outside the department in a very different manner. Hmm. Another thing the salary list reveals is that the highest paid positions at CSU are all held by men. In the top 10, there is one woman, the dean of the business school. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'd love it if there were more women in that group. There's no doubt about that. Um, it doesn't surprise me, I have to say. I've been on this campus a long time, and our leadership has been dominated by men. Um, one of the things we're certainly looking at at the President's Commission and other groups on campus is how do we mentor women and promote women and create a culture that we can get more women into leadership positions and into those more highly paid positions. And separate from, from that and separate from pay and, and, and positions, there there is this huge national conversation right now about sexual harassment in the workplace. How do you see the role of the commission uh, in tackling that issue at CSU? Well, first of all, I'm proud to say that CSU has had really great sexual harassment policies for decades. They've been very proactive about this, and those policies cover everyone on campus, all of our employees, as well as our students. Um, and they are they also cover they cover people who feel like they might have been the subject of harassment, and they also cover people who might have been accused by harassment. And so, in that sense, I think you know, compared to say our federal Congress or even our state house. CSU as an organization has been very proactive about sexual harassment. That said, um, how the commission gets involved is what we do is we take on different things throughout the years to basically make CSU a better place for women to work and learn. And so um, if there are particular harassment issues that come up that need our attention, we'll focus on them. Right now, the way that the things that the commission are focused on, um, I mentioned the culture of the university before, that larger effort will certainly help to address or prevent or decrease any kind of harassment that's going on on campus. 
Um, and we're also looking at things like, for instance, the grievance process on campus, because often, you know, harassment cases may sometimes lead to some kind of a grievance, and we're always trying to improve that process as well. Are the universities uh, watching what you do? Well, I don't know that for sure, right? Um, but I hope so. Um, one of the studies that we did recently about the culture and climate on campus, we are planning to publish in peer-reviewed journals, which is how academics get the word out to other academics about what's going on. So certainly that will help. Um, you know, we are a member of the APLU, the American Public Land Grant University Association, and our leaders get together you know, regularly to share best practices about everything going on on campus. And I'm sure that this topic would be one of those. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Susan James is a professor of mechanical engineering and chairwoman of the Commission on Women and Gender Equity at CSU. There's a link to the new report on pay and the salary list at CPR.org. Tax reform is moving swiftly through Congress, and it's virtually certain a package of tax cuts will land on President Donald Trump's desk in the coming weeks. What does that mean for Colorado? CPR's business reporter Ben Marcus spoke to Mike Lamp. Republicans say that these tax cuts, more than $1 trillion worth, will help spur the economy. Now, Colorado's economy is already pretty strong. Does that mean that this will make it perform even better? It's hard to imagine Colorado's economy could be any hotter, right? Like unemployment is hovering around record lows. New businesses continue to form here. Businesses are relocating here and expanding. With oil and gas industry finally ramping up, now we have most sectors of Colorado's economy are really humming right now. And so would tax cuts help? I talked with Buzz Coble, who runs a real estate development company here in Denver, and he's excited about these permanent corporate tax cuts. He says it'll be a boon to small businesses in particular. They then have much more money to invest in efficiencies, in production, in people, in new products. But the collective nature of all that is it puts more money in people's pockets. Now, that seems to make some sense. More money for businesses could mean more investments and hiring and potentially higher wages. And that's true. The question is, what is the scale of that impact? Now, Colorado's a low-tax state and a low-tax country. And tax policy doesn't seem to be holding back a lot of businesses here. In fact, tax policy isn't listed as a top concern in Colorado's business surveys. Unequivocally, the number one concern is the lack of people to fill the jobs that are already being created. Now, congressional Republicans, they say the national economy will be sparked so much by these tax cuts that they'll pay for themselves with the just pure economic output. But there's no study or modeling that I could find that claims that. Instead, the projections show it adding nearly a trillion dollars to the federal deficit. What do the Republican tax reform packages have for middle class families? So the majority of families would get a tax cut in 2019 under the Senate plan. A government analysis found of that plan that 80 percent of middle income Americans would get a tax cut of at least $100. Vanessa Williamson is a tax expert at the Tax Policy Center, and she says Republicans have worked on the plan to make it less tilted to the wealthiest Americans. 
And so they've put in some measures to try and reduce taxes more across the board. Uh, but be careful because those tax cuts expire, unlike the ones for corporations and the very wealthy. She says that's an effort to reduce some of the massive price tag of the bill. But still, Republicans have said that they would vote to continue those individual tax cuts before they're scheduled to expire. And we should note that Republicans have attacked the tax policy center as left-leaning, but they've also attacked the government's own analysis for not showing more benefit to the economy. It looks like this tax bill affects states with higher taxes, more so than Colorado. So both the Senate and the House version of the tax reform bill removed the deduction for state and local taxes. And now this mostly affects Democratic-leaning states on the coast, like California and New York, because they have much higher state and local taxes that you can deduct. Again, Colorado is a relatively low-tax state, and the state and local tax deduction is just much smaller here. But I understand that there is a provision that does have a direct impact on Colorado, and that has to do with craft beer. In the Senate version of the bill, small breweries would see a fairly large tax cut. For the first 60,000 barrels of beer that they brew, the tax rate is cut in half. Now, Colorado has about 350 craft breweries, and the head of the Colorado Brewers Guild told the Denver Post that this is a, quote, huge deal for them. It's only in the Senate version, though, so it's unclear if it'll make it into the final bill in the conference negotiations. I should note that Colorado Senator Cory Gardner did try to secure a provision that would have provided much-needed tax relief for marijuana businesses, but he couldn't get that into the Senate version of the bill. That's CPR's business reporter Ben Marcus and Mike Lamp discussing the tax bill making its way through Congress. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A special holiday celebration at Mesa Verde National Park features thousands of lanterns, known as luminarias. As we learned last week, there are candles inside paper bags. And Estevan Shepard of Colorado Springs wrote to us on Facebook to say they're a southwestern tradition. We called up an expert to learn more. My understanding the history of it is um, Spanish merchants, of course, would travel all over the world. And, and they saw paper lanterns in China. Shelby Tisdale is with the Center of Southwest Studies at Fort Lewis College in Durango. Of course, when they came to the New World, and especially into New Mexico, this seemed to be a tradition that they brought with them. And it's it's a tradition that still goes on today and very much a part of Christmas Eve almost all over New Mexico. And, and I understand in parts of southern Colorado as well. Tisdale says these luminarias also have another name. When I lived in Santa Fe, uh, we called them feralitos. And everyone, especially in the older neighborhoods, will go out and they fill up brown paper um, sacks with sand and then they put candles in them. And they do this during the day on Christmas Eve and then Christmas night at dusk, everybody in the neighborhood goes out and, and lights these candles in the in these bags. And then everyone in the neighborhood walks all around the neighborhood. And when I lived in in Santa Fe at that time, um, the luminarias were actually like small little bonfires throughout the neighborhood where uh, families would provide hot chocolate and biscuititos for the people walking around the neighborhood. 
Shelby Tisdale is director of the Center of Southwest Studies at Fort Lewis College. So you don't have to go all the way to Mesa Verde to see the luminarias, but if you want to experience the evening with music and storytelling, it's next week, December 14th. Commuters in Denver's northern suburbs have waited years for a new rail line to connect them to downtown. The N-Line was supposed to open early next year, but RTD now estimates it will be late 2019. Court documents show RTD and its contractor are at odds over which party is responsible for that delay. CPR's Nathaniel Miner has been looking into the conflict, and he joined Mike Lamp. So, Nate, first, uh, tell me a bit more about this N-Line. Where exactly will it run? It'll start at Union Station and run parallel to I-25 up north to Thornton. And it'll stop at the National Western Stock Show and five other spots along the way. And what is the issue here? So it's uh, basically an argument over land acquisition. Who was supposed to secure some properties needed to build and open the line? RTD blames its contractor, Regional Rail Partners, for the delays with that process that have pushed back the project by a year and a half. Regional Rail Partners says, no, it's RTD's fault. So here's how RTD spokesman Scott Reed describes the dispute. We are looking at um, who has the responsibility for providing that type of uh, project element. It's our belief that that is the responsibility of our partners, and they are disagreeing with that. So we are just trying to get some clarification of that. I should also say that I contacted the contractor, Regional Rail Partners, and they referred me back to RTD. How did this dispute come to light? It's actually kind of notable that it has. So disagreements like this do happen, uh, but they're usually kept private. This one's different because it rose to the level of a lawsuit. So back in May, RTD filed a civil complaint in district court in Denver, laying out its argument against regional rail partners. A month later, the contractor filed its own counterclaim. So what is the status of that case now? So the judge eventually told both parties just to go into arbitration. So here's RTD spokesman Scott Reed again. We are in the middle of that right now, trying to determine an arbitration process. Uh, no arbitration has yet been scheduled, and no arbitrator or arbitration panel has yet been selected. So does that mean that work is on hold while they go through this process? No. Uh, actually, I was just up there near the National Western Complex the other day, and I could see crews out there working on the line. Uh, Reed says the dispute hasn't slowed down construction at all. What might be the result of this arbitration? Well, in the court documents, the contractor said they wanted more money from RTD in the neighborhood of $40 million. And the entire contract was for $343 million. So that's a pretty sizable increase. That would fall to RTD to pay. And of course, the agency is funded by taxpayers. And RTD obviously doesn't want to pay more. But arbitration is a private process, so it'll be difficult to follow what happens. But you will be following what happens. (laughs) I'll do my best. And again, when might trains start rolling on this end line? Uh, Late 2019 is what RTD estimates. Okay, well, thanks for the update, Nate. You're welcome. That's CPR's Mike Lamp speaking to reporter Nathaniel Miner. You can read the court documents online at CPR.org. My colleague Ryan Warner hosts his regular interview with the governor next week. And one topic on the table is all the growth and change in Colorado. 
Did you hear a Denver restaurant the governor used to own is going to close? The Wazi Supper Club has been a Lodo fixture, and a lot of people say it helped transform downtown into what it is today. And it got us thinking, what places do you miss that are no longer around? Restaurants, hangouts, things like that? Head over to CPR News' Facebook page and reminisce with us, or tweet us, at Colorado Matters. We'll be back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Writer Florence Williams was living in Boulder, breastfeeding her daughter when she realized how little she knew about that part of her body. So she wrote a book, Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History. Williams has since moved to Washington, D.C., and her book is now a podcast. A few years ago, she spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis about the book and the debate over why women have breasts in the first place. Breasts are incredibly unique in the animal kingdom. For example, we get these rounded swellings on our chest at puberty, and we have them all the way through our adult lives, whereas other primates only have these swellings while they're lactating, and then they recede. And so in anthropological circles, it's sort of a big question, well, why, you know, how did we get so lucky? And, and so the debate really comes down to, did breasts evolve as sexual signals for men, which is what many anthropologists have thought for many decades, um, or did they evolve um, so that the fat in breasts could somehow help the survival of the woman and her infant? How did you end up writing a book about breasts? I ended up writing this book because as a science journalist, I had seen research reports that toxic chemicals were showing up in breast milk. And at the time, I was nursing my daughter. And I thought it might be a great way to tell the story as a journalist if I tested my own breast milk. Plus, I, as a mother, I just wanted to find out what this really meant and, and you know what my levels were if I had any. So I sent a vial of my breast milk to a lab in Germany, and um, they tested it. And it came back positive for flame retardants and a jet fuel ingredient. Um, pesticides, and also dioxin, which is a known carcinogen. Um, you know, these were just a few chemicals that they tested for. But, you know, it turns out that that we all have hundreds of, of industrial chemicals coursing through our bloodstream. And it turns out that breasts, because they're so fatty, attract a lot of these chemicals. And the breast is really good at converting them into breast milk, unfortunately. Did it make you hesitant to breastfeed? Um, did you look into the sort of cost benefit of these toxins versus all of the benefits of breastfeeding that research has found? Yeah, sure. It definitely gave me pause. At this point, I'd already nursed one child. So this was my second child. It made me think, wow, what did I give my first child? Um, and so I, so I did do, you know, I talked to a lot of experts. I did a sort of cost benefit. And it turns out that there's, there's really a widespread consensus that the benefits of breastfeeding far outweigh the risks. You know, we're also learning more and more all the time about the amazing substances in breast milk that we never knew existed before. And uh, if anything, these seem to sort of help compensate, you know, for the bad things in breast milk. And they may even help protect kids from the effects of toxic chemicals. I think it's also important to point out that formula, um, you know, also has contaminants in it. Um, and the water it's mixed with um, certainly is filled with all kinds of things like pesticides. Um, and it's also important to point out that breast milk is just one exposure, you know, that these kids or that infants are getting. The primary exposure really comes during gestation through the placenta. And so 
um, I, I look at the breasts and the breast milk as just a, an obvious and visual symbol of, of these exposures that we're all getting. And so we know that modern life has changed breasts in some interesting ways. Early puberty, um, you talk about that in your book. Um, how is that affecting sort of the onset of breasts? How much earlier are girls starting to get breasts? And how early are kids hitting puberty? It turns out that girls are developing breasts younger than ever before. Um, we know that, um, for example, African-American girls, one-third of them will start growing breasts um, between the ages of six and eight. Mm. And it's about 10 percent of uh, white girls and I think 15 percent of Hispanic girls. And overall, about a third of girls will start developing breasts by the time they're nine or 10. And this is about a year earlier than 15 or 20 years ago. And the big question is why? Right. The big question is why. It looks like the main driver of early puberty is diet. Unfortunately, children, just like adults, are bigger than ever. And one third of children are overweight or obese. So we know there's a relationship between um, body weight and the timing of puberty. But actually, it doesn't really seem to explain the whole phenomenon. For example, there was a recent study in Denmark that looked at girls who are developing breasts one year earlier than they did 15 years ago, and yet their weight is virtually the same. And so the researcher is trying to understand what else is going on, and she's tested the hormone levels of these girls to see if maybe they're producing more estrogen in their bodies. And she found that they really weren't, which makes her think that the source of estrogen is coming from somewhere else, for example, from food or chemicals in our environment that mimic estrogen. Is there anything wrong or troubling about early puberty? Parents are concerned about this because we know that girls who enter puberty earlier are at higher risk for breast cancer later on. And we also know that these girls who go through puberty earlier are more at risk for depression. They're more at risk for substance abuse. You know, I think in any child, it's, it's hard to be different from your peers. But I also think as parents, there are some things we can try to do to, you know, delay it a little bit. For example, there seems to be a relationship between fiber in the diet and the timing of puberty. The higher the fiber in the diet, the later the puberty. And there, there are some studies that indicate that eating meat might um, also promote early puberty. So I think if we can keep our girls, you know, uh, athletic and if we can give them healthy diets, that's a really great start. And it's good for all sorts of things, not just early puberty. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're replaying our interview from a few years ago with science writer Florence Williams about her book called Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History. Today, it's being released in a podcast version. Williams says the modern diet is changing the size of breasts. We know that breasts are getting bigger. Uh, cup sizes are bigger. This is something that the bra manufacturers talk a lot about. They say the average size of the American breast used to be a 34B, you know, even 15 years ago. And this years isn't ago. only artificial. Right. This isn't only artificial. You know, implants are only uh, in about 5% of women. But overall, now these, these lingerie companies are saying, you know, their average sizes that they're selling are, you know, 34 and 36 um, C, D, double. D. Uh, they talk a lot about this demand for increased cup sizes. And it turns out that this is also a result of our diet. You know, American women's bodies are getting bigger everywhere. And of course, some of us gain more weight in our breasts than others, but that seems to be happening. 
Well, this is also the 50th anniversary of breast implants, and you actually traveled to Texas to talk to the first recipient of a breast implant. Yeah, this was a fun story. I found the woman who got the first breast implants, silicone breast implants, in 1962. At the time, she was um, about 30 years old, and she actually went into the hospital because she had a tattoo on her chest that she wanted to get removed. And I guess she she sort of walked into the wrong room (laughs) because she walked into the room of the Mm -hmm. doctor who had just invented the silicone breast implant, and he was looking for a human guinea pig. He had implanted it in a dog named Esmeralda already. Esmeralda really didn't like it. She ended up chewing it out. So Timmy Jean um, said that she really didn't want breast implants. She'd never thought her breasts, you know, were problematic. (laughs) But she said she wanted to get her ears pinned back. And the doctor said, well, I'll make you a deal. I'll pin back your ears if you agree to get breast implants. And so she did. And the amazing thing is she's been walking around with the same ones for 50 years. (laughs) But they haven't exactly been uh, a success for her. Well, like many of the early generation implants, hers had problems. They ruptured and they turned hard. She's um, gone through periods where she's had shooting pains in her chest. But, you know, she never joined the largest class action suit in the history of the United States against implant manufacturers in the 90s. She never um, tried to get her implants removed. At this point, she, you know, she just doesn't want another major surgery. But she also, she was very loyal to those those doctors who who used her as a guinea pig. And I think there's a part of her that's really proud that she's a part of this medical history. How safe and prevalent are these implants now? Well, implants have uh, improved a lot over the years, fortunately. They're now made with much tougher shells, so they don't break open as often. And the gel inside them now is much stiffer. It's sort of like a gummy bear, so that if the shell ruptures, the implant is not supposed to move around anywhere. Although there are still some surprising side effects associated with breast implants that we don't hear that much about. For example, they still turn hard. We know that um, the average shelf life of a breast implant is only five to 10 years. So women who get them are kind of buying into repeated surgeries, um, and they still do leak open sometimes. Um, We know that sometimes um, there are visual problems with implants. For example, the implants sometimes migrate together, and this causes a visual known as bread loafing or sometimes uniboob. Um, or sometimes there are effects called double bubble. Um, so, you know, I think it's a decision to be made, I think, after a lot of discussion uh, with your doctor and and just knowledge that it's a major surgical procedure and not really just a minor product, you know, that you're buying that sometimes I think the plastic surgery industry, you know, would like you to believe. You know, when we talk about breasts these days, um, a lot of the talk is around breast cancer and the prevalence of it. What do we know about the rates now of breast cancer? We know that breast cancer incidence has increased a lot in this country, especially since the 1940s. It started to level off a little bit in the last 10 years. But globally, breast cancer is really taking off. It's expected to increase 20 percent by 2020. And globally, it's the number one cancer killer of women. And why is this? Are we more aware of it, too? Or is there something in the environment or somewhere else that's affecting um, the numbers? That's a great question. We're certainly better at detecting breast cancer, especially as mammography becomes more popular around the world. 
But I think it's pretty well agreed upon that the rise in breast cancer isn't totally explained by mammography. And for example, in China, which is so rapidly industrializing, we know that women are getting breast cancer on average 10 years earlier than women are getting it here. We know that the risk factors for breast cancer now, things like family history, um, whether you smoke, what your weight is, your reproductive history, all of those things only account for about half of all breast cancers. So people are really wondering what else is going on. You also write about how, in some ways, the military is leading the charge on breast cancer research. Why? There's an emerging male breast cancer cluster on a military base in North Carolina. About 74 men have come forward with breast cancer who all at one time lived or served on Camp Lejeune. It turns out that Camp Lejeune had the most contaminated groundwater supply ever discovered in the United States. It had a number of known or probable human carcinogens at, at levels sometimes 200 times the safe level for these chemicals. And there are actually many diseases emerging out of this base, but, but male breast cancer is such a rare disease. So when you see a number of men showing up with it, it really raises some alerts. And the federal government, the Centers for Disease Control, is looking really hard at these men. It, in some ways, it's easier to study breast cancer in men because their lives aren't complicated by things like reproductive history or age at puberty or whether they take hormone replacement therapy or how long they breastfed. It's really a simpler relationship sometimes between um, a potential carcinogen and cancer. And so um, it would actually be the first time that we have been able to, to pinpoint a chemical cause of breast cancer. So it would be a really big deal. And it's kind of ironic that it's men who might help solve the puzzle of a women's disease. That's science writer Florence Williams speaking with CPR's Andrew Dukakis a few years ago about her book, Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History. Her podcast is out now. It's called Breasts Unbound. Finally today, we bid farewell to longtime Denver band Paper Bird. For the last decade, Paper Bird has been a fixture on Colorado's indie music scene. Since forming, the group has undergone many changes in its lineup and in its sound, evolving from vintage folk to power pop on their 2016 record. Paper Bird is calling it quits. Last year, singer and co-founder Genevieve Patterson explained the group's family-like dynamic. We are all pretty sensitive people. We do a good job of finding ways to incorporate everyone's ideas, but it's also a, it's just a brutal business. So you have to constantly evolve. So in a lot of ways, we need to be more of a support team for each other because 
at the end of the day, we're all working together to put something forward. And, you know, even when we don't always agree on everything, we know we always have each other. That makes up for a lot. Paper Birds' final shows are this weekend in Denver and Nederland. And that's our show for today. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook. Producers Anthony Cotton, Andrew Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, and Stephanie Wolf. Our audio engineers Matt Hers and Michael Hughes. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day. Stop.